Hi, listeners. As a special thank you to the local Pacific Northwest businesses that donated to our raffles for the Pacific Northwest True Crime Fest, we're going to be featuring little promos for these businesses over the next couple episodes. Today, we'll be discussing Rose Paper Studio. Rose Paper Studio was created by Daniela in May 2019. She was born and raised in Bellingham, Washington, and drawing and hand lettering quickly became an outlet for her anxiety and helped her with her own battle with mental health issues. Her goal is to provide people with gentle reminders of self-love and self-care. All of her prints are drawn by hand, making the print unique and special in its own way, and most pieces also feature botanical art that is drawn from her life here in the Pacific Northwest. Head over to rosepaperstudio.com or look her up on Instagram to check out her amazing prints and artwork. Hi guys, you know Winston and I love a good sticker shop and now we have another recommendation for you. Social Tags is a Vancouver-based e-commerce shop creating cute animals, travel, and food stickers for everyone to enjoy. All of their stickers are vinyl, waterproof, and dishwasher safe making them the perfect item to stick on laptops, water bottles, and phones. Head over to our show notes for all the links where you can find social tags. Welcome to True Crime Cat Lawyer. I'm your host, Elise, and sometimes my cat Winston joins me. This podcast contains content of a graphic nature that might not be suitable for all listeners, including descriptions of violence, sexual assault, and crimes against animals and children. Listener discretion is advised. On behalf of Winston and I, I want to say thank you for coming out over the past couple days, and especially staying late for our show. I know it's late on a Sunday afternoon, but I appreciate it. Um, For those of you who don't know about our show, we are a Pacific Northwest-based podcast that focuses on lesser-known cases in the region, and we recently switched up the format of our show, so we're going to be starting our first season um, with today's episode. We'll post it tomorrow on our feed, and then after that, the next nine episodes of season one will be released every Friday. Um, Before we get started today, I want to make sure I include a trigger warning. We are going to briefly discuss child abuse. Um, We don't get too much into the details, but I do want to give people a heads up if that's something that you're not comfortable with. Feel free to leave. Um, Like I said, I'm not going to get too much into the details, but I want to make sure everybody's aware that we're going to cover that. Um, If this is your first time tuning into our show, welcome. Um, Our goal is really to focus on the victims and telling their story making sure that we pay respect to them and their families. So when we submitted this case to cover for the True Crime Fest, I knew I really wanted to tell you guys as much about the victim as I could. And 
I want to give a huge heartfelt thank you to the victim's sister, Janine. She, <clears throat> excuse me, she spoke to me for a while about her sister and she gave me a lot of insight into who her sister was as a person, a daughter, a sister, and a friend. And I also had the opportunity to speak with the family's private investigator, Brent Campbell, who was also incredibly helpful and very, very kind um, to take the time to speak with me. Um, and so in addition to speaking to Janine and Brent, I also submitted a public records request to the Seattle PD, and there was an extensive piece done on this case by the Seattle Times. So all of this information is from people who knew the victim and or police reports and police case files. So this is the most accurate information that I feel like I can present. Um, it's not, you know, coming from secondhand sources. It's coming from actual people involved in the case. So Autumn Stone was born on August 14th, 1996. She and her older sister Janine grew up in Everett, Washington. They lived with both their mom and dad until their parents got divorced when Autumn was 12. After that, they lived primarily with their mom, but they still stayed close to their dad. So according to her family, Autumn was always smiling, even when she was a little kid. She was incredibly nice and sweet, and she always put others before herself. Autumn was a pretty typical kid. She liked to draw, she liked to read, and she liked to sing, but not in front of anyone, because according to Janine, Autumn was extremely shy, and she had this extremely close-knit group of friends, and she didn't really socialize outside of that group of friends. And unfortunately, Janine also told me that Autumn was bullied a lot in school. When she was younger, she was really skinny, you know, kind of that goofy, awkward phase that we all go through. And then, you know, she hits puberty and you start gaining weight, you know, as your body is kind of taking its shape and form. Um, and she didn't really start losing her quote unquote chubbiness um, until about high school. But like we all know, kids can be super cruel and mean and even though we all went through our awkward and chubby phases, you know, it's just part of life. Um, unfortunately, Autumn also had to drop out of high school at one point because she had developed ulcers from stress. Um, so she did eventually get her high school diploma, but it was a really stressful time for her. So according to Janine, Autumn had only been with two men in her entire 23 years of life. So one was a man named Jacob, who was the father of her older son, who I'm going to refer to as Samuel for this episode. That's not his real name, but he's an innocent underage minor, and I don't feel like it's appropriate to use his real name. So according to Janine, Jacob and Autumn were polar opposites. Like I said before, Autumn was extremely shy, but Jacob really seemed to be able to bring her out of her shell and help her experience more things in life. And although they broke up eventually at some point, Autumn and Jacob were still on friendly terms and they were able to figure out how to co-parent together for the sake of Samuel. I also talked to Janine about the effect her parents' divorce had on Autumn and herself. And according to Janine, both she and Autumn, quote unquote, put love on a pedestal. 
And Janine explained to me that that meant they both kind of put their all into their relationships and they were people pleasers. So Autumn in particular really didn't like upsetting anybody. So she was very much like, go with the flow. I'm going to do what the other person wants and make sure that they're happy. And she really came second to all of that. And Janine was fiercely protective of her younger sister. And she tried her best to parent her and be that kind of like brutally honest voice of reason. But I think when we're all kind of growing up, we don't want to hear that, you know. (laughs) Um, So Janine admitted that she was often in the dark when it came to the true nature of Autumn's relationships. um, Because Autumn always said she was happy and she didn't want to burden anyone with her problems. So she didn't necessarily let on if there was something going on in her relationship that wasn't the greatest. All this to say, Autumn was an incredibly wonderful and selfless woman who was just trying to figure out her way in life, just like all of us are. And that brings me to the second man in Autumn's life, Tyler Washington. They'd known each other since they were kids, but they had lost touch at some point. They reconnected in 2017 and eventually got engaged. Janine said that her family absolutely loved Tyler And they were super happy for the couple and their future together. According to Janine, Tyler seemed really nice. He seemed to treat Autumn really well. And he just seemed really good for her. And that's what you want for your sister, your friend, your daughter. is somebody that's going to be respectful to your family member and treat them the way you would want them to be treated. So that's kind of the backstory that brings us to the summer of 2019. So August 2019 started off as a really good year for Autumn. She was engaged to her fiancé, Tyler, and they planned to get married in September. The couple had recently welcomed their first child together, a baby boy who I'm going to refer to as Michael. Again, not his real name, but he's an innocent minor, and I'm going to protect his anonymity. So Autumn's a new mom. She's about to marry her fiancé. Things are going really well for her. But then we come to August 21st, 2019. Around 9.45 that night, Autumn went to Jack in the Box to pick up some dinner. She left Michael, who was about five weeks old at this point, alone with her fiancé, but her grandparents were also in the house because Autumn, her fiancé, and the two babies were all staying with Autumn's grandparents so that they could save up money for the wedding and to buy their own place. I'm not sure of the exact distance between Autumn's house and the -the jack-in-the-box, but what I do know for sure is she was gone for less than 12 minutes. So when she got back to her grandparents' house, she walked into every parent's nightmare. Michael was limp and barely responding, and he was gasping for air. He had to be resuscitated twice on his way to the hospital, and... Michael had suffered severe swelling to his brain, which had led to seizures. He suffered a traumatic brain injury, and he had several broken ribs. And then comes the worst part. Doctors told Autumn that the injuries that Michael had suffered weren't accidental. Although Autumn's grandparents were upstairs in the home when the incident happened, 
they unfortunately didn't actually witness the, the incident. The only actual witness was five-week-old Michael, who isn't going to be able to tell the police anything. So, of course, as mandatory reporters, the doctors were forced to call Child Protective Services, who immediately got involved. These were really serious injuries to a brand-new baby. Um, so CPS interviewed Autumn, Tyler, and Autumn's grandparents, and they did end up opening a formal investigation. They removed Samuel and placed him into the custody of his father, Jacob, and baby Michael stayed in the hospital while he recovered, and Autumn wasn't allowed to see him, which was incredibly devastating for her because her boys were her entire world. She would do absolutely anything for those boys, and Janine told me that Autumn had always wanted to be a mom, and everything in her life centered around Samuel and Michael. And then things keep getting worse for Autumn, because she found out the real reason that CPS was so quick to open an investigation was because Tyler had a prior conviction for child abuse back in 2014. And the case was eerily similar to what happened to Michael. So in May 2013, Tyler's five-week-old daughter, who had a different mom, not Autumn, uh, suffered a fractured skull, broken ribs, and bleeding and swelling in her brain. The baby, like Michael, had permanent brain damage, primarily affecting the, le the left side of her body and causing seizures. Tyler originally told police several different stories before he finally admitted that he had an anger problem and told them that he squeezed his five-week-old baby girl more than once and shook her multiple times out of frustration because she wouldn't stop crying. Tyler pled guilty to second-degree assault of a child and he could have faced up to 10 years in prison. But he was sentenced to five years in prison and was ordered not to have any contact with his daughter for 10 years. Which, if my math is correct, means that he still isn't allowed to have contact with his daughter to this day. And I know what you're thinking. Autumn and her family had absolutely no idea about this prior abuse case before they started dating. Tyler told Autumn he didn't tell her about this past because he thought her family wouldn't accept him, which rightfully so. He also claimed he pleaded guilty in order to protect his family, but then he denied actually abusing his daughter. So, of course, Autumn broke off their engagement and told Tyler to move out of her grandparents' house. And then, of course, her grandparents changed the locks. So, Autumn was obviously pissed and heartbroken, confused, and just devastated at everything that had happened to her and her son in this incredibly short period of time. In the week or so after Michael was injured, something had shifted in Autumn. She was motivated to get her sons back, and she was doing everything in her power to make that happen. On August 29th, 2019, Everett police took a blanket, jumpsuit, and car seat from Autumn's home. Everett PD told Autumn and her mom that neither one of them were suspects in Michael's case. Despite all of her anger, confusion, whatever, at Tyler, 
Autumn did tell Everett police that she'd never actually seen Tyler be violent. And even Janine said that they never saw like an angry side to Tyler. But Janine was quick to admit that he put on a really good front for the family. And after hearing about his prior child abuse conviction, Janine did say to me that she realized the man she once thought of as so good for her sister could actually change at the flip of a switch. And she and the rest of her family didn't really know who he was or what he was capable of. But like I said, Autumn was determined to get her sons back. According to Janine, Autumn had a plan to do just that. She made an appointment to take a polygraph test. She looked into parenting classes She was ready to do whatever CPS wanted. Janine told me Autumn was absolutely devastated about being away from Michael during this time. He was a newborn baby that had, they had barely had a chance to bond before all of this happened. And then on top of that, he suffered these incredibly devastating injuries as well. Janine said that Autumn was extremely stressed and overwhelmed because of everything going on and the fact that she was being punished for something that she wasn't responsible for. Autumn spoke with her Nana and her dad, looking for advice on what she should do. Autumn was a very religious and spiritual person, so her dad encouraged her to say a prayer and write it down, and that's exactly what she did. So on August 30th, 2019, at 10.26 a.m., Autumn wrote the following prayer in her journal. Quote, Dear Lord, thank you for all the blessings you have given me in my life, my two beautiful boys who are my whole world, my everything, and I love them both more than words can ever express. Thank you, Lord, for blessing me with such amazing gifts to cherish always and forever. Thank you, Lord, for watching over my family and providing your love, healing, and peace, especially to Michael, who needs your love and healing and peace the most. I love my babies with every piece of my heart, and I would and will do anything and everything I need to to make sure they have the absolute best lives possible. They deserve the absolute best. Amen. End quote. So according to Autumn's mom on August 30th, Autumn was in high spirits that day. She told her mom she was going to go to Green Lake to clear her head, and then she was going to go get her nails done and kind of give herself a mental break. At either, I'm sorry, at 10.54 a.m. on the 30th, Autumn texted her stepmom to let her know about the plans that she had made to take a polygraph the following Tuesday. Autumn also thanked her stepmom for sending her a picture of baby Michael. At 11.31, Autumn parked her 2013 Hyundai at the Green Lake Community Center near a path that ends at Pebble Beach. Autumn called her mom, Kirsty to let her know she made it to the lake. And according to Kirsty, it was a brief call, but nothing sounded out of the ordinary. Autumn had also been texting Jacob, her other son, Samuel's dad, and they were trying to work out a visitation arrangement for Autumn to see Samuel. So Jacob had filed a petition to kind of limit Autumn to supervised visits, but he said he felt forced into doing that by CPS. 
and it really wasn't about concerns he had for Autumn being a good mom. So the last text that Jacob received from Autumn was around 1.30 or 2. Then it was absolute radio silence from Autumn, which was incredibly out of character for her. Around 3, two little girls who were at the park with their parents told their dad they saw a turtle floating in the water. Their dad, a man named Justin Kearns, was paddleboarding in the lake, so he paddled over to where the girls told him they saw the turtle. Kearns quickly realized it was not a turtle. He'd found the body of a woman floating face down in the lake about 20 yards from the shore. Kearns checked the body for a pulse, and finding none, he went back to the shore to call 911. Officer Shane Burdett was the first officer to arrive on the scene at 4.15. He spoke with Kearns, who reported calling 911 after finding a body floating in the water. Kearns told Officer Burdett he had prodded the body with a paddle, but he didn't get a response. At 4.20, Officer Douglas Beard arrived on the scene. The body was still in the water at this time, so Officer Beard waded out into the water and rolled the body on its back. The victim's eyes were open, but non-reactive. Officer Beard immediately took assessment of the victim. Her vest was fully zipped, covering her neck, but he thought he heard a gasp from the victim, so he immediately requested assistance from the paramedics who'd arrived. They attempted CPR, but they eventually pronounced the victim deceased. Once on shore, they struggled to unzip the vest. They eventually had to force it open. And once they got the vest open, paramedics discovered that shoelaces had been wrapped around the woman's neck several times. But they had been wrapped tight enough that Officer Beard later wrote in his report that they actually had to cut them off of the body because of how tight they were wrapped. And according to Officer Burdett's report, the shoelaces were pinching the skin of the victim's neck and left obvious marks on her skin. Based on the driver's license found in her pocket, the victim was identified as 23-year-old Autumn Stone. Also found in her pocket was her cell phone and her car keys. Officer Burdett was able to locate Autumn's car, which was still parked at the Green Lake Community Center. And according to the family's private investigator, Brent, a cursory search of the car was performed. But Brent essentially told me that all they really did was check the car to see if there were any children in it because she had car seats in the back seat and I believe she had a baby on board sticker. So Officer Burdett's own report states that he, quote, checked the vehicle and found nothing immediately noteworthy, end quote, so he secured the vehicle. This is the only search that was done of the vehicle to this day. A third officer at the scene was tasked with conducting an area search to find and or identify potential witnesses to what happened to Autumn. Near the south end of the path where Autumn was found, Officer Garrett Hay found a hammock in some trees. Not only did he find this hammock, he, there was also a man in the hammock. This man had several backpacks and a sleeping bag and he was apparently asleep when Officer Hay came across him. The man told Officer Hay he didn't see anything suspicious that afternoon because he'd allegedly been asleep in the hammock for some unknown period of time. 
when Officer Hay took a copy of the man's driver's license to run a records check. The officer found out that this man had multiple protection orders against him, along with an active misdemeanor domestic violence warrant. But despite all of this, the man was released by Officer Hay. The man was never publicly named as a person of interest or a suspect, which is why I'm not sharing his name. But Officer Hay did list the man's involvement as suspicious in his report. The only other witness police had was Kern's wife. She'd also been at the park that day with their kids. And while she didn't see anything involving Autumn, she did see a man leaving the area over by where the hammock was found. And she said that he was in a hurry when he heard the sirens from the paramedics and the police. She provided the following description to Officer Hay. The man was a white male, around six feet tall, with a medium build, a salt and pepper ponytail down to his shoulders, and possible stubble on his face. Kern's wife told Officer Hay that the man might have grabbed a small item like a backpack while he was leaving the scene. Unfortunately, there is no description of the man in the hammock, so I can't be sure if he was the same man that Kearns' wife saw that day. So police did their best to canvass the area for witness, witnesses, but they really didn't come up with much. So back at the scene, investigators went looking for Autumn's shoes because they weren't on her body and they weren't found along the shoreline. Instead, Autumn's shoes had been tossed into two separate bushes about 20 feet apart from each other. And of course, her shoes were missing the laces. It's definitely an odd discovery, but it's also entirely possible that Autumn took her shoes off herself and threw them randomly into some bushes. But I will note that Janine said Autumn was an incredibly neat person, and she said that if her sister had taken off her shoes before she got into the water, she would have placed them neatly along the shore or found a bench or a rock, somewhere to put them where they were neat and tidy and not just strewn about. So when the lead detective, Ed Garcia, arrived on scene, he performed a preliminary visual exam of Autumn's body. He noted the obvious ligature marks on Autumn's neck, but he later stated in his reports that there was, quote, nothing to indicate defensive or struggle marks or scratches on her neck near the ligature mark to indicate Autumn was fighting or resisting, end quote. Detective Garcia canvassed the immediate shoreline and found no drag marks or anything else to indicate a struggle had taken place there. Brent has been incredibly vocal about the evidence that refutes Detective Garcia's claims. He had enhanced photos taken of Autumn after she was pulled out of the water, and it's clear from those photos that her hands were red and she appeared to have defensive wounds, including a cut on her finger and abrasions with flaps of skin, as well as, as, well as chunks of skin missing from her knuckles. So as you can imagine, this was an incredibly difficult time for Autumn's family. Her newborn baby was still in the hospital with significant and serious injuries, and he was still recovering, and now... Autumn was dead. The medical examiner performed an autopsy in the days after Autumn's death. His preliminary cause of death was strangulation with a drowning component because she'd been floating in the lake. 
But again, the examiner noted no signs of trauma to her extremities and no signs of trauma or defensive wounds to her neck other than the ligature marks themselves. By the time the official autopsy report was released, the coroner had dropped the drowning component because there was no water found in Autumn's lungs, meaning that she'd been dead when she went into the water. As for the cause of death, the coroner wrote in his report that due to uncertainty pertaining to the circumstances of Autumn's death, the manner of death is undetermined. On September 3rd, 2019, the Everett Police Department called Detective Garcia to tell him about the pending child abuse case involving Tyler. They told the detective Tyler had been interviewed a few times and was very cooperative. However, when he took a polygraph, he was deceptive about injuring Michael. Tyler denied abusing Michael and his daughter back in 2013, and he told Everett PD that his kids were everything to him and he would never do anything to cause them physical harm. Everett PD also sent a copy of Autumn's prayer from the day of her death to Seattle PD. Later that same day, Autumn's fiance Tyler was brought in for an interview. At least one source stated that Tyler didn't actually find out about Autumn's death until he came in for that interview, which was several days after her body had been found. Tyler told police he last saw Autumn on August 29th near the Everett police station, which he claimed was just by chance. Tyler wanted to talk to Autumn that day, but his mom said that's probably not a good idea given everything that's going on, and so he didn't approach or talk to Autumn at that time. Tyler also told police that he and Autumn were supposed to get married on September 7th, but they'd been separated <clears throat> separated for a week due to an issue with five-year-old Michael. Tyler denied being at Green Lake on August 30th, and claimed he was at his mom's house in Bellevue the entire day. Tyler consented to a forensic examination of his phone and turned over his cell phone to Seattle PD. While Detective Garcia was waiting on the results of Tyler's phone dump, he took a statement from Tyler's mom. She told Garcia that Tyler had been staying with her for about a week since he'd moved out of Autumn's grandparents' house. Tyler's mom also claimed that he'd been in the apartment all day and he never left. She explained that Tyler didn't have a, didn't drive and didn't have a car, so he stayed at her apartment all day and played video games. Supposedly, his three younger brothers were also there with him all day, but I never actually came across any interviews or statements with them that corroborated this claim. Two days later, on September 5th, the dump of Tyler's phone was complete. Detective Garcia found out there was no location on Tyler's phone, no location data on Tyler's phone after August 10th, 2019. So for the weeks leading up to Autumn's death, as well as the day her body was found, there was no information on Tyler's cell phone to pinpoint where he'd been during that time. Basically, his alibi couldn't be verified, and police couldn't determine whether he'd been at home all day or if he'd been at the lake with Autumn. Detective Garcia tried to get a warrant to access Tyler's phone logs, like call and text logs, but the warrant was denied based on a lack of probable cause. 
So for Tyler's part, he claimed he didn't know why his location data was gone from his phone. He said he always had his location on no matter what. And he then told police that he didn't think he should be considered a person of interest in Autumn's death. And he thought Autumn was just in the wrong place at the wrong time. And, quote, maybe some crazy dude came over and got her, end quote. On September 10th, 2019, Autumn's mom, Kirsty, signed a consent form to allow police to try and access Autumn's cell phone. According to Officer Darren Shagai's report, the SIM, the SIM card was wet when it was taken out of her phone, and when he tried to charge the phone, it wouldn't take a charge. So he tried to then power on the phone as a, another alternative means to turn on the phone, and unfortunately, he couldn't get it to turn on. So without being able to actually get the phone to turn on somehow, he couldn't extract any information from the SIM card. So SPD officially closed their file on September 13th, 2019, just two weeks after Autumn's death. But they didn't tell Autumn's family about closing their file until September 19th, nearly a week after they had closed their file. Detective Garcia told Kirsty that based on the autopsy report and his investigation, there was no physical or medical evidence found to indicate that Autumn was the victim of a homicide, so the SPD ruled her death as a suicide. He also told her that Seattle PD would reinvestigate if any information came to light in the future that was quote-unquote suspicious in nature regarding Autumn's death. And with that, SPD seemingly washed their hands of Autumn's case. So... Autumn's family tried to get answers as to how someone could kill themselves in the manner that Autumn was found, and they, they've never received an explanation. It's super uncommon for people to strangle themselves to death in general, but it's even more uncommon for somebody to wrap shoelaces so tightly around their neck to strangle themselves, then somehow zip up their vest, and after they're deceased, get into the water because remember, Autumn didn't have any water in her lungs, which means she didn't breathe in any water. So according to the Seattle Times article I mentioned earlier, quote, the lack of evidence that someone killed the lack of evidence that someone killed Autumn became SPD's strongest evidence that she killed herself. But the absence of something doesn't tell you anything, end quote. So from what I gathered after reading Detective Garcia's report and my interviews with Brent and Janine, it seems like SPD read way too much into the prayer that Autumn had written in her journal. And they really felt like this was some kind of suicide note as opposed to a prayer. But Janine and the rest of her family are adamant that Autumn would never kill herself. One, like I mentioned earlier, she was deeply religious, which I think everyone knows most religions really condemn suicide. Um, and two, there's absolutely no way that Autumn would leave her baby boys without a mom. 
Janine did concede that Autumn was stressed and overwhelmed in the week leading up to her death, but who wouldn't be? She had a lot going on. She just lost her kids for something she didn't even do, and she was coming to grips with the fact that the man she loved and had planned on spending the rest of her life with may, and most likely did, harm her baby. But Autumn was making plans to get her son back as soon as possible. She was willing to do whatever it took. So, like the family, I don't buy the suicide theory. But because SPD had tunnel vision about Autumn's death being a suicide, no additional evidence or theories were pursued. They didn't even mention in their investigative report that the medical examiner found sperm cells inside Autumn. The sperm cells, the shoelaces, absolutely nothing was sent for DNA analysis prior to the SPD closing the case in September 2019. According to at least one source, Autumn spoke to her court-appointed attorney on the day she died, along with a friend-slash-co-worker named Kimberly. Janine told me that Kimberly was like a second mom to Autumn, and she confided in her a lot. So on the day that Autumn died, she called Kimberly and spoke with her for about 15 minutes. Kimberly said they talked about the pending child abuse case and how Autumn hadn't been able to visit the baby in the hospital because of the case. Autumn told Kimberly she was determined to get her boys back and she was going to get answers that day. Despite all of this, SPD never contacted Kimberly, Autumn's attorney, or even her older son's dad, Jacob, even though they all had some kind of communication with Autumn on the day she died. Because of their disappointment in SPD's investigation, Autumn's dad and stepmom hired private investigator Brent Campbell. So with the help of Brent, Autumn's family was able to get her case reopened, and they requested that the vaginal swabs be sent to the crime lab for testing. And this testing is a whole nother rabbit hole in and of itself. So in the records that I received from SPD for my public records request, there are four different crime lab reports about this DNA and semen evidence testing. So the first report is from May 2020, and the report states that no semen or male DNA was detected on the vaginal swabs, therefore no further testing was conducted. But then, in September the vaginal swabs were again submitted to the crime lab for DNA testing. According to a report dated November 13, 2020, the shoelaces were sent to the crime lab for testing. A mixed DNA profile was obtained from the DNA after both ends of the shoelaces were swabbed separately. The report also mentioned that additional requested items weren't tested at that time, but the report didn't mention specifics as to what those additional items were. The most recent report from the crime lab is from July 2021. The report states that semen was detected on the vaginal sample, but the limited amount of male DNA that was present was insufficient for their particular testing. So the crime, the crime lab analyst who wrote this report recommended that the DNA be extracted from the vaginal samples specifically for YSTR testing, which targets only those genetic markers on the Y chromosome. So this is the last information in the file I received about the DNA testing, 
And when I spoke with Brent, he mentioned that SPD is being really closed-lipped and defensive about the DNA specifically, and he doesn't really get updates from them anymore. So he is really hopeful that police are one step closer to figuring out what really happened to Autumn on the day she died and who is responsible for her death. And Brent also told me that SPD claims that Autumn's case is open and active, but he's also unsure if her death has officially been reclassified to a homicide. Unfortunately, Autumn's family is just waiting for answers and hoping that her case will be solved for the sake of her two sons. Sadly, no charges were ever filed in Michael's case due to sufficient evidence and the lack of any witnesses other than five-week-old Michael. According to Janine, baby Michael has permanent injuries as a result of the abuse he suffered. Although he smiles and laughs, Janine said he doesn't talk except for a few words, and he struggles to hold his neck up, even though he's now three years old. Janine told me that baby Michael is being cared for by Autumn's dad and stepmom, and Tyler doesn't have any contact with him. In fact, according to both Brent and Autumn, they have no idea where Tyler actually is. It's also unclear if SPD has kept tabs on Tyler following Autumn's death. Both Brent and Janine believe Autumn was murdered by someone she knew. But for now, Autumn's family has to wait for answers and hope that SPD is actually taking her case seriously. Until then, they wait. Thank you for listening to today's episode. Please subscribe and leave a review if you like the show. You can email case suggestions or comments to truecrimecatlawyer at gmail.com. The links for our social media pages are included in the show notes. You can find our discussion group on Facebook by searching for True Crime Cat Lawyer in the group section. And if you want more content, head over to Patreon to join one of our available tiers. You can get monthly mini and bonus episodes as well as early access to our main episodes. Finally, if you're interested in learning more about my co-host, you can check out her Instagram at WinstonTheCatPDX. Thanks again for listening and stay tuned for our next episode.